So before we get started, we just want to say how excited we are that Red Light Rising are sponsoring the School of Calisthenics podcast. These guys have got some awesome tech, which comes with a whole host of health and performance benefits that is backed up by some really solid science. Myself and Tim have always been interested in ways that we can improve our health and our wellness, and we've been enjoying using the Red Light therapy that James and Brian have developed at Red Light Rising to help improve our recovery and performance. They're also releasing a series of articles on their blog to help improve your immunity during this difficult time, looking at things to improve circadian rhythm, fasting protocols, cold water therapy, heat therapy, as well as obviously the red light therapy itself. So these guys are giving out some amazing information, which is really useful during this time. And if you're interested in finding out more about red light therapy, head over to the website, check out the blogs. And because they're nice, generous guys, they've also given a 5% offer to School of Calisthenics podcast listeners of any of their red light therapy products. So if you want to check those out, and you want to bag yourself a little bit of a bargain, just use code SOC5 at checkout and enjoy 5% off better health and immunity. Just go to redlightrising.co.uk to find out more information or to see what the guys have got going on social just search red light rising on your favorite channel on to the podcast welcome to the school of calisthenics podcast with your hosts tim and jacko So sit back, settle down, and get ready to breathe through your nose as we welcome Patrick McEwen onto the podcast, the author of The Oxygen Advantage and Jacko's new favorite pinup boy. <laughs> this is, um, I got recommended this book by Richie Norton as a game changer, and I was interested in breath and just jumped straight into it. And um, I'm not that good at reading, and I read that book fast because I found it so interesting and implemented the stuff, and it's, yeah, it is a game changer. I won't try and say too much else about it because you're going to hear from the main man himself uh, for nearly the best part of an hour and a half, but it's an hour and a half's worth of gold, um, and there are practical things that you can do to take away within it. Uh, so just sit back, buckle in, and uh, and listen uh, listen to Patrick McEwen on the on the podcast talking about how and why we should be breathing more through our noses. But there is one other thing, Timbo, that I'm very excited about, and I know that you're very excited about as well, and that is the Handstand Up to COVID campaign, correct? That is absolutely right, Jacko. We have launched and revamped our new handstand training program, and I have to say... It's one of the finest pieces of work I think we've done. Um, I've heard best yet. <laughs> well, let the audience be the decider of that, Jacko. So streamlining, concise, down into the absolute essential things that you need to do a handstand. And it's not just a load of fancy and cute drills. It's like a proper educational program. So yes, you can get into it and just follow the, the exercises and the training programs. But if you want to learn a little bit more about your training, which is what we've always been about and, and helping you to understand the handstand process, which I am very confident is going to improve your results. If you know why you're doing what you're doing, it makes it so much more effective in terms of the training process and adaptation. Check out the handstand program. And there's a little bit of like some nice stuff to go around it as well, given the current climate, which Jacko can tell us about. Yeah, so, uh, you know, a lot of us are stuck at home and, and 
Tim has widely said handstands is probably the best thing you can do with your hands when you're home alone or, I'm or to, in I'm isolation. I have to revisit that based on now being home for a long time. That, here's our <laughs> other things you can do with your hands, which are Painting, also enjoyable. But yeah, but, yeah, but handstands is a great thing physically, but also mentally. It gives us a little bit of a goal and a bit of a purpose about our training. And it's something that we want to encourage people uh, to do and obviously help you with the tools to do that. And that's why um, we're sort of doing it as part of this stand handstand up to covid and as part of that we're giving 10 percent uh throughout the month of april of all the the memberships and and um uh, sales that come through for the school of calisthenics so by those that are already members and those that are joining um by joining you are we're giving 10 percent of that to uh, charities one at the nhs and then also a local charity to us in nottingham uh, and for the whole of april we have got an, a special offer for you if you want to join us and use that this brand new handstand program uh, it is 50 percent off your first month's membership um and if you take up the standard membership then that is only it was less than five pounds that first month so you can get started for five pounds um, and that is it and join all of us inside the virtual classroom as being part of a member and not just that program you get everything else that you get or all the other programs that you might you may or may not want as part of your membership for the virtual classroom so whilst I reflect on whether I think that Patrick is going to be happy to be referred to as a pin-up boy, sit back, <laughs> settle in, and enjoy Tim and Jacko with Patrick McEwen on the School of Calisthenics podcast. Roll that jingle. Yes, I've been waiting for this podcast for such a long time. So excited. Tim just asked me, yes, this is the most excited I've been um, for a podcast guest. And it is for Patrick McKeown from uh, author of The Oxygen Advantage. And I'll tell you all why I'm so excited about it. But first, just uh, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jackie and Tim. Yeah, it's great. Thanks. And don't get too don't get too intimidated when I potentially fanboy you a little bit. But basically, I'd we 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 spoke just briefly before we came online of the fact that you said you know breathing is becoming a lot more just widespread and popular. There's a number of different people that have made that so, and we've had a few people on our podcast before, and um, one of them was Richie Norton, who is sort of breathwork, and I don't know if you've come across his work, but he. Um, he got me a little bit more intrigued. I actually went to one of his workshops and I had this um, sensational feeling or notion that like everyone's talking about breath. Right? And I was like, am I breathing properly? No one's ever taught me to breathe. I think I am or am I? I'm not sure. Like, And then I hear about nasal breathing, belly breathing, all these different things. And there wasn't anywhere. I wanted a resource that was going to go like, give me some actual answers. And uh, Richie said, right. Get the get the get the get the book Oxygen Advantage. It's an absolute game changer. And and to put it into context of of it being a game changer, um, for me, have it absolutely loved the book. And we'll get we'll delve we'll delve into that in a bit more detail um, later. But for um, just very like just some results or contextually, I probably about six months started it. And like I do anything. I sort of not that strict enough to like, I have, I have to be honest, I haven't been doing all the stuff like perfectly, sure. but I went and did my, I went and did a 5k park run, having done no difference in training. I probably run once a week, no difference in training whatsoever at all. And I would occasionally have dipped under a t the 20 minute mark, which is not too bad for a 5k. But I went to a brand new park run I'd never done before. Didn't know the course, finished it was trying as much as I could at, at times to breathe through my nose and was trying to belly breathe. But um, obviously when I was going hard out, there was no chance that that was going to happen in a short space of time. I'd only been doing it for a few weeks at this point. But um, I finished, 
I didn't think I'd done that well. And it was, I didn't even dare look at my watch for ages. And when I finally did, I'd done it, I finished in 1916 and I almost kicked myself. I was like, man, I didn't even do a sprint fit. Like I had like a bit of energy left. I could have easily gone under 90 minutes. And of course I didn't even know. So firstly, thank you. Um, okay. And secondly, well, now I've got sort of people made potentially a little bit excited about what this phenomenon is. Um, one at the heart of, or just give us a bit of a, an introduction to yourself and what it, what is at the heart of the oxygen uh, advantage and, and nasal breathing ultimately? Sure. Um, I came across this about 20 years ago and it was because of having asthma and I had undiagnosed sleep apnea. So concentration levels weren't good. Stress levels were pretty high and asthma. And if, if you have a breathing pattern disorder, it's not just isolated to your lungs. It, it also will affect emotions and it will also affect sleep. So my background is economics. I've got a, an MA from a university in Dublin, Trinity College in Dublin. And I was in the corporate world and I hated every bit of it. I hated the controls imposed on employees and uh, the stress and employees were pitted against each other. But, you know, I was in my early 20s and I was well able for that. But when I look back, you know, my stress levels in the corporate world were partly due to my own making. I didn't have the resilience to be able to cope with that. And I read an article in the newspaper about the importance of nose breathing and the importance about breathing light because it's not just about breathing hard to bring in oxygen into the, into the blood. People often believe if you breathe hard, it increases oxygen uptake in the blood and it increases oxygen delivery to the tissues. It doesn't. It actually does the opposite. So I started switching from mouth to nose breathing. I was feeling suffocated and I uh, wore breathe right, breathe right strips on my nose at night. I taped up my mouth. And on the second day of waking after taping up, my sleep was unbelievable. Like it was something I'd never experienced before. My energy levels were better. And uh, within about a week, my asthma medication reduced by about 50%. And that's, that's not an exaggeration. So I was totally intrigued. I knew it worked. And um, I went into my father-in-law and after about two years or a year or so, I says, I'd love to be teaching this. And of course, his head dropped. <laughs> so he was thinking, this lunatic is going to leave a corporate job with a company car and all of the, the you know, kind of the not... The, the things that come with it but yeah I found something that I love to do so I was working mainly I trained in Russia in 2000 I finished in 2002 I was working mainly with people with asthma with sleep disorder breathing with anxiety up until about 2011 2012 worked with a lot of kids with craniofacial development and um, with orthodontistry getting children to nose breathe so that their face develops the way it should do or at least helping to direct that growth and uh, then in 2012, we had a physiologist over from Sweden and he said, could you show that your tech, the technique that you teach, could that improve or reduce lactic acid? And I said, okay, we'll start looking down that road. So, so that's where the oxygen advantage was coming about and uh, started, spent three years putting the book together. So yeah, so that's where it's at now. And it's, it's great. Uh, 20 years and it's an overnight success. It just took me 20 years, you know? <laughs> yeah, like all the good overnight successes. <laughs> well, um, obviously, we'll encourage people to get the, um, the the book, The Oxygen Advantage. We'll put a link in the show notes so people can go and grab that um, on Amazon very easily. But um, 
just want to backtrack just a smidge in that we, we brushed over very quickly because I remember the, fir- the first time I uh, said to someone, I've got the oxygen advantage, but the first, anyone that had read it, they went, have you got to the bit where you, where, where you tape your mouth closed at night? And then and you, we sort of brushed over that quickly. I have to say, I have used gaffer tape um, and to varying degrees of success on, uh, depending on how long my beard is. But um, for some people, that's going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. What did he just say there? And also I've, I got very excited about this because I felt the benefits like, like you very, very quickly. And also how you explained in the book, like the reason and rationale behind, like why we need to be changing the, our, our breathing habits was very, for me, very impactful. And I wanted to tell people about it, but I found that there was a number of people that pushed back straight away of going, well, no, I just breathe through my mouth. Like, that's fine. And I, I wasn't able to, arti- I was like, just read the book because <laughs> I wasn't able to articulate why. Um, and so just like at the very, be- just at this very beginning point for people, just to, just to contextualize, like physiologically, like what is, why is it so important? What are the things that the nasal breathing is going to benefit? And then what are the problems with um, this habitual over breathing, mouth breathing? Like, how does it come about? And cause I, as I was reading that, I was like, this is me. Mm. Um, and then we can get into a bit more from that. Yeah, it's very common. Um, nobody should wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. And when you wake up in the morning, your mouth should be moist and your tongue should be elevated to be in the roof, roof of the mouth. And the whole aspect is, if you have your mouth open during sleep, your sleep is light. You don't reach down into the deep stages of sleep. Uh, you're more likely to snore. You, you especially can snore through an open mouth. And... Um, the other aspect of it is that you're, you're tending to breathe using the upper chest and you've got a greater risk of obstructive sleep apnea. That's when the upper airways, throat, um, collapses during sleep. So breathing through the mouth imposes a resistance to breathing about two and a half times that during, as compared to the nose during sleep. And it is really detrimental to a good sleep. Even with children, children who are mouth breathing, there was a Stratford-upon-Avon study looked at 11,000 kids over an eight-year period. I think it was published in about 2010, 2011 by Karen Bonnock is one of the researchers. Children with sleep disorder breathing, they had a 40% increased risk of special education needs. And mouth breathing is one of those contributory factors. And we know that 25 to 50% of studied children mouth breathe. So it's really about trying to get back to basics here. And I'm not teaching anybody breathing techniques, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to unravel the bad habits that people have picked up over the years. And uh, in terms of breathing, mouth breathing is certainly a bad habit. What's causing it, nobody really knows, but it could be a combination of different things. Tongue tie could be an issue, lack of breastfeeding. Uh, Breastfeeding isn't just about nutrition, it's also about manipulation of the muscles of the face, which is necessary for craniofacial growth. Chewing, we don't chew food now. Uh, Everything is pre-chewed. Like even young infants in our ancestral times, they would be gnawing bones and they would have been eating hard vegetables and you know that's developing the muscles of the face and all of that is lost we're in overheated houses we're stressed out um, a lot of our occupations involve talking which is going to increase our breathing volume we breathe harder and breathing hard is going to cause reduced blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain so people who talk for a living they will generally be quite tired mentally exhausted at the end of the day talking so i suppose A very easy way to think of good breathing patterns and poor breathing patterns is how do you breathe if you get stressed? Well, I think most people realize that when you get stressed, your breathing gets harder, it gets faster, 
you sigh more, so it's a regular breathing. It's more from the upper chest. There's not a natural pause following exhalation, and it's more effortful. And what I teach in functional breathing is the opposite to that. And when we look at functional breathing, it's not just about the biomechanics. It's not just about the, the biomechanics in terms of the diaphragm. We also need to look at the biochemistry. And I think this is something that breathing therapists or breathing instructors, they often stick to one dimension of breathing, but there's more than one dimension to breathing. So functional breathing is about how do you, how do you breathe to change and improve the biochemistry of the blood? How do you improve breathing using the lower lobes of the lungs to increase oxygen uptake in the blood? How do you breathe through the nose? Um, how do you decongest the nose? And also cadence breathing in terms of helping the, the autonomic nervous system and bodily systems disturbed by stress. And then as a stressor, then we add in strong breath holds. So one of your questions there was all about the functions of the nose. Well, for sleep, your sleep quality is not likely to be good. But for physical exercise, very little research on this, Jacko. One yeah. paper was published by a triathlete called George Dallum. From, he's an academic from the United States. He's a well-known triathlete there. And he switched to nose breathing during all of his physical exercise for four years. And as you said, like his recovery was much better. His times were better. Um, nasal breathing is less trauma to the upper airways. The amount of athletes who get cyclists cough or they get uh, you know, upper respiratory tract issues, colds, head colds, etc., and um, bronchoconstriction, increased lactic acid from mouth breathing because there's not enough oxygen delivery to the tissues. Um, there's not enough oxygen. Well, there's going to be oxygen uptake, but the oxygen uptake during nasal breathing is 10% higher. The pressure of oxygen in the blood is 10% higher. So if you think of the, the main things in terms of the breathing, yeah, most people, when they do physical exercise, they do it all with the mouth open because it's easier. But George Dallum's paper, he got 10 recreational athletes. He had them do all of their, all of their physical exercise for a period of six months with their mouth closed. And then he tested them. And they were able to achieve a 100% work rate intensity on a graded exercise test, but they had 22% less ventilation. So nose breathing is harder, it's more difficult, the air hunger is stronger, but the air hunger signifies that a gas called carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And it's very good to expose the body to this gas because it's this gas, carbon dioxide, that's the stimulus to breathe. And if you're overly sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide in the, in the blood, your breathing is going to be hard. You've got more intense breathing. And intense breathing is a waste of energy. You know, there's, there's, it's not just about the oxygen uptake in the blood. Yes, that's better with nasal breathing. Oxygen delivery is better with nasal breathing. The fraction of expired oxygen is less with nasal breathing. The amount of air that you need for a given level and intensity of exercise is less with nasal breathing. Recovery is better. Um, you're more likely to stay aerobically for longer, but also you're not wasting as much energy because, you know, breathing requires oxygen. And uh, as we sit here and talk, it's probably about two, three percent of our VO2. If you go for a walk, it's about five or six percent. If you go for a fairly intense run, it's about 10 percent. If you do maximum exercise, it's about 15 percent. But if you have poor breathing patterns and you, if you are breathing hard, in hyperventilation provocation tests, you can be using up as much as 30% of your oxygen consumption just to support the breathing muscles. And our breathing muscles are prone to fatigue. And 50% of athletes, whether, it's, whether you're an endurance athlete or whether it's a sprinter, um, if you have respiratory muscle fatigue, blood is stolen from the legs to feed the diaphragm. 
So the next time you see an athlete are partaking in sports and the next time you see their legs going from under them, you have to suspect, is it a buildup of hydrogen ion that the, the body can't clear or is it that there's blood stealing to feed the diaphragm? Crikey, there's a lot in there to start to unpick. <laughs> Thank you for that, Patrick. It's amazing. Sure. Um, I think there's a couple of things that I really liked in the introduction to the book that just really simplified things, and, and there's lots of stuff that we can we can unpick in there. And there's, there's a couple of concepts I think will really help people to, to understand a little bit of, of um, or contextualize, at least in their own lives, uh, some of the stuff that you're talking about. And the thing that I liked is we, as a, as a fitness and exercise community, we focus a lot on exercise and food, and we're quite good at understanding that quality and quantity is our, our key determinants in that, in terms of maintaining optimal health. Just give us a bit of context around that, how that applies to breathing. And then the, the second part of that is then, can you just tell us a bit about bringing the mountains to the people rather than having to go to the mountains? Sure, sure. Uh, I think there's a link between breathing and food. If you read a book that was written back in 1938 called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Dr. Weston Price. And uh, he was a dentist with an interest in development of the human face. And he went around various civilizations and he investigated what happens when these people switch from a traditional diet, something that they've been eating all their lives, to uh, the, the, the standard kind of American diet, the SAD or typical diet that we have in Western Europe. Um, he noticed that children's faces changed, they become crooked, they develop crooked teeth, their arches were narrow, but they were mouth readers. Um, if you look at in around something around page 50 of that book, he looks at people off the Hebrides, the islands, and they were living on traditional food of fish and oatmeal um, for decades, for generations, for thousands of years, or whatever length of time they were there. And when commerce started coming to the island, all it took was one generation of food to change breathing. So I would say that food is having some influence on breathing, and breathing could also be having some influence on food, but that might be a different story. In terms of how would you bring this in or what could you take from it in terms of quality? Well, I suggest that you, you measure your bolt score. And the bolt score is the length of time that you can hold your breath for comfortably following an exhalation. And for, since 1975, for 45 years, this has been recognized to be a measurement of dyspnea or breathlessness. Now, I remember being at a county football team here, they're semi-professionals kind of Irish football and um, there were a group of group of these footballers around the table and about one minute into it I said this guy here is, your breathing is holding you back and I, I said that within about one to two minutes and all I did was look at his breathing as he sat there and he was breathing faster per chest but I noticed he was sighing and for me that's alarm bells and I know if I was to measure his bow score it would be low I would have suspected his bow score was about eight, eight or nine seconds and yeah, then I gave my spiel and afterwards the strength and conditioning coach came over and he says, I couldn't believe that you picked up on that. And I said, it's obvious because if you have poor breathing during rest, it's not going to fix itself during physical exercise yeah. and also during sleep. And if you look at any athlete, you should never see relatively fast upper chest breathing. The rule of thumb of breathing is your breathing should be almost so difficult to see during rest. You shouldn't hear it. You shouldn't see it, and it should be effortless. So the bowl score gives you a degree of the functionality of your breathing. And again, the science is catching up here. There was a paper by a professor of physiotherapy called Kiesel, K-I-E-S-E-L. 
and he looked at 51 subjects and he measured air breathing patterns from a, different, a number of different dimensions, uh, carbon dioxide, the biomechanics, and also from psychophysiological. But he concluded that the breath hold time, and he described it exactly as the bolt score. You take a normal breath in through your nose, the normal breath out through your nose, you pinch your nose with your fingers, you time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe or the first involuntary contraction of the breathing muscles. He said, if your breath hold time, your bow score is greater than 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. So I would say to any person, first of all, if you're involved with sports, measure your bow score, sit down, allow your breathing to recover, measure your bow score. And if it's less than 25 seconds, you've got room for recovery. Sorry, you've got room for improvement. And how would that impact? So if you have an athlete with a bowl score of 10 seconds or 15 seconds, he, will, he or she will experience disproportionate breathlessness, more likely to have muscle fatigue, uh, more likely to have, they could be genetically predisposed to anxiety or panic disorder. Um, it's very common with people with a genetic predisposition to anxiety and panic disorder. 80% of them have breathing pattern disorders. It's 80%. And in asthma, it's about 30%. And in the general population, it's probably about, according to a Cochrane review, it's 10%. But I would say it's, it's, it's higher than that. Yeah, I would have, I would have thought that it, was, that it was high. I'd almost want to, um, whilst people are listening along now, they just invite them to, to, to do that, just as a, just as a bit of a, a test for themselves that they feel comfortable. So it's in through the nose, out through the nose, pinch your nose, and then, and then hold your breath until the first voluntary or involuntary movement of the of the breathing muscles or your you know, first desire to breathe. You're not trying to black out by holding. And you, but like what you say, um, when you when you then take your next breath, it should just be a normal breath. You shouldn't yeah. be like gasping for air um, as a bit of a, just a way to make sure that you know that you're um, not just cheating yourself by trying to get a, because I tend to, when, when you start doing it a bit more often, like I really, really want it to improve. And then you're almost like trying harder. Um, and I think for, and you're saying like below 10 seconds is pretty bad. Um, yeah, below 10 seconds, people are going to be very, very breathless. Um, yeah. If they go for, a, they won't be able to run with their mouth closed. No, yeah. no way. So I, when I first did it, I think I was about eight to nine seconds. And I was like, yeah. I was literally like, as soon as I was holding, by the time I got about to about five seconds, I was starting to almost panic is what I feel. I had like a sense of panic. Um, and I was a bit like, and then I got my wife to do it and she did like 20 odd seconds. I was like, God, crikey. Like this is, there's something not right here. Like that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be like that for, for me. And that, you know, you've got these different stages, like 20, getting to 20, 25 seconds is a good marker, but moving onwards to sort of 30 mm -hmm. up to 40 seconds, which just seems um, crazy. Be glad to know my PB now is 26. Wow. Good stuff. Well, it's, um, it's, it's great. And, yeah, and you do you do definitely notice the difference. Um, something that really got me to buy into it, and you mentioned before, was the this concept of um, what's what the the part of the brain is the boron receptors in the brain of like triggering you when to when to breathe, and the fact that they are a marker for carbon dioxide. Is that right? And that yeah. this and that carbon dioxide not being as they teach you at school when you're doing biology, carbon in oxygen in, carbon dioxide out, carbon dioxide is bad. It's a waste gas. Get rid of it. Um, just, just explain a little bit more about uh, how, how that carbon dioxide is helpful in actually getting more oxygen into the blood rather than us not having enough blood, like oxygen saturation in the blood. Cause I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, sure. Carbon dioxide, it comes from your tissues. 
Um, it's produced as a result of metabolic activity. So it's coming from the cells into the blood. And uh, the pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood is determined by the pressure of carbon dioxide in the lungs. And the pressure of carbon dioxide in the lungs is determined by your breathing. So if you breathe hard, you get rid of carbon dioxide, too much carbon dioxide from the lungs. And this in turn reduces carbon dioxide in the blood. And it's very easy to get rid of carbon dioxide from the, from the blood. 30 seconds of hard breathing can get rid of about 20 millimeter mercury pressure of CO2 from the blood. You can reduce the CO2 in the blood by half, almost half, as a result of hard breathing. And when you lose, when you lose carbon dioxide, too much of it, your blood vessels constrict. So that's why people feel lightheaded when they breathe hard. But not only do the blood vessels constrict, what was discovered back in 1904 is called the Bohr effect. And the Bohr effect states that as carbon dioxide increases, blood pH drops, and the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen reduces. In other words, your red blood cells release oxygen in the presence of carbon dioxide. Now, this flies in the face, Jacko and Tim, of what we hear all the time. We hear, breathe in oxygen because it's good and get rid of all that stale air and carbon dioxide because it's a poison. Well, people have to realize that your red blood cells don't deliver oxygen so readily to your tissues unless carbon dioxide is present. So we need a balance of oxygen. We need a balance of carbon dioxide. And the third gas that plays a role in the release of oxygen to the tissues is nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is only produced inside, well, it's produced at different sites of the body. But in terms of the airways, the higher concentration of nitric oxide is produced in the nasal cavity. So if you breathe through your mouth, you completely bypass nitric oxide. So I often get people, yeah, because people say to me, well, what you're saying, how come it's different to what everybody else is saying? And I'm saying what everybody else is saying is not correct, that a belief went out there and people ran with this belief. And uh, the best way to dis discover this is to put it into practice. So I, I usually get people then sit down, put one hand on their chest, one hand just above their diaphragm, above their navel, sorry. And I get them to really follow their breathing and gently slow down the speed of the air coming into the nose. And in other words, to slow down the speed of air, so almost that they feel hardly any air coming into their nose, that their breathing is so light. And at the top of the breath, take a very relaxed and slow, soft breath out. And with that then, the objective is that they breathe less air into their lungs. This increases carbon dioxide in the blood, and they feel air hunger. So I get people to breathe slowly taking less air into their lungs to feel air hunger and to do that for three to four minutes and check your body temperature, check the temperature of your fingers um, check if you're feeling drowsy and check if you have increased saliva in the mouth. Because when you slow down your breathing with air hunger and carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood, more oxygen gets delivered to the tissues and organs, of course, the brain. And also your blood vessels open up. Cold hands are very much a sign of over-breathing. So people with cold hands, it's not a good sign. It shows that the, the blood vessels are constricting. Cold feet, the same. Brain fog, the same. And if you want to increase blood flow to the brain, and the reason I say this is I remember doing an exam, and I was after reading this book on breathing, and it said take one full big breath or whatever it was per minute. And I went for a walk before the exam, and I was taking this full big breath believe in bringing in as much oxygen as possible. And I walked into the exam, I was totally out of my head, lightheaded. And it messed up my exam because I wasn't able to concentrate. So if you're doing an exam or a presentation, and when we're working with elite athletes or even 
singers pre-concerts, they can be anxious going out. I have them do slow breathing with lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs to help activate the, the body's relaxation response and also to focus the mind on the breath. So we were looking at, looking at it from a number of perspectives. But then I get them to do five strong breath holds to increase blood flow to the brain. And um, breath holds, they're not suitable if the female is pregnant or if people have kind of serious medical conditions. But if you want to increase blood flow to your brain, don't breathe harder. Do the opposite. Hold your breath. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that's quite, when you first start trying to take some of this on board and just to highlight the fact that like some of the stuff that you quote in there, like this isn't just um, an opinion. This is based on, it's based on science. And some of it ironically is like, quite some of it's like relatively old some of the stuff mm. with the, the born receptors that's been a lot around for a long time it's just not for whatever reason um and and you know thank god that you've brought it out to the um to to the the sort of to the public or brought it brought it out there um and there was uh we've got a couple of questions coming in there was one um just because i know people are sort of, sort of trying one of the people listening in live to the podcast is um Owen Beardshaw and he he's he's just done the bolt score and he's he's done t- uh, 14 seconds right now and only a couple of weeks ago he was at 10 so so he's improved it's good um, coming up and there was um someone else had mentioned and I found this as well when you try to do it um when you try to do some of the breath hold work or even not even breath hold work just trying to breathe through your nose when you go out for a jog say that your nose just starts streaming. And I know that you've got some like um, nose unblocking um, things that are really simple to use. Um, and it would be good to, it'd be good to, to go through that. Cause I know that people are trying to use these things, but often you can find that actually almost it's too hard. You mm-hmm. said it is harder or literally your nose is just streaming. And, um, and then all of a sudden you just start gasping for air through your mouth again. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a number of reasons. Um, Anatomically, if you have a small nose, you will have a greater resistance to breathing. So the air hunger is going to be stronger and it makes it more difficult to run with your mouth closed. And also if you have a deviated septum. So about 60% of people in the Western world, the line that divides the left side of the nose to the right, the center line is crooked, it's off. And as a result, one side of the nose, I have a deviated septum, it's all over the place. So the best way to find that out is just if people do what's called a coffin maneuver, they put their fingers either side of their nostrils and just gently prise their nostrils apart. And if that makes a difference to their breathing, if they find it easier to breathe, what they might need to do is to wear a nasal dilator during physical exercise. So some races have better nasal cavities. Um, Africans are better nasal cavities. They have a different nasal cavity than the Caucasian. Caucasians can be quite small. I would assume Asians as well are quite small as well. So when I'm working with a student, I'm always kind of looking, well, what's the entry into the nose like? Because that's going to make a difference straight off. Now, your nose will be stuffy until the bolt score is 25 seconds. And anybody with rhinitis, which is a stuffy nose, or if they have hay fever, it's allergic rhinitis. The thing about a stuffy nose is it doesn't just affect your nose. Because since 2007, researchers have recognized it's one airway. If you have inflammation of your nose, it can travel down to your lungs. And if you have inflammation of your lungs, it will travel up to your nose. So if you have a stuffy nose, you're more likely then to have bronchoconstriction, but you're also more likely to have a sleep problem. Anybody with a stuffy nose, they are twice as likely to have sleep issues. So people mightn't think that their stuffy nose is, is messing with their sleep. And now they're wondering, well, there is a connection. I have a stuffy nose for years. 
and it's very common, 30% of the population of a stuffy nose. That, pop, that population is most at risk in terms of sleep disorder breathing, including sleep apnea. So yeah, there's irritant receptors in your nose and initially at the start when you switch to running with your mouth closed, your nose will run. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. I'd say the thing is bring a, bring a, hanky, bring a hanky with you or something just to, to keep cleaning your nose. Um, but I would say absolutely persist with it. Now, there were a school of physiotherapy who did a couple of small studies back about 10 years ago, and they measured that physiotherapists, there were 12 in this, in this, um, in this group, that they could achieve an, 80, an 85 to 90% work rate intensity when they switched to nose breathing. So that was just, say, off the bat. So you get a, 10 recreational athletes, and you say, okay, guys, now you're going to switch to nose breathing. They still will be able to do physical exercise. They won't achieve 100%, but they'll, they'll get up there pretty high. It'll be enough to have a good training effect. And this is a case of quality over quantity. However, if they continue nasal breathing for a period of eight weeks, then they will have personal bests. It will totally surpass. And none of this information is new. I was talking to a a doctor, John Dulliard, he wrote a book back called Body, Mind, and Sport, or Mind, Body, and Sport, back about 30 years ago. And he published papers in the 1990s, and I found them on PubMed, that looking at the, the brainwave states of individuals who do physical exercise with their mouth closed, they were entering the zone. And I didn't think that would be possible, um, that when they looked, did EEG readings in these individuals, because nasal breathing, is keeping you in a much better state in terms of the autonomic nervous system. Like mouth breathing is total fight and flight. Our ancestors, even during physical exercise, didn't breathe through an open mouth. Look at Neanderthals. The, two years ago, researchers came across Neanderthals and uh, the, the, the specimens that they came across had really big nostrils, not just to breathe through their nose during rest, but also to breathe through their nose during physical exercise. So we have a situation that all of our ancestors were nasal breathing for all of throughout evolution. And now suddenly the modern man is, and woman is breathing through their open mouth during exercise. But if you, look, if you look down at your chest and take a breath through the mouth, mouth breathing activates the upper chest. Mouth breathing is fast breathing. Fast and upper chest breathing is activating the sympathetic response, just that's the way it is. Slow and diaphragmatic breathing calms the individual. And the other thing is that the group greatest concentration of blood is in the lower regions of the lungs. It's not in the upper. So if you're breathing fast and shallow, it's absolutely the most inefficient way to breathe. And this is why oxygen uptake in the blood, the PO2, um, not the blood oxygen saturation, by the way, but the entire concentration of oxygen, it reduces by 10% with mouth breathing. Yeah, it highlights like the whole, it's not just one thing. So not anything in, in isolation, that whole idea of like the stress response. Yeah like it's it's fueling itself because we are stressed from work we're stressed from life we are stressed from poor diet all these things that and then we have a, that the fight or flight response stimulates from the mouth but then it's just that snowball effect and i guess it's that's what for some is one of the one of the things that gets us into that um that that continual like over breathing through the mouth and difficult to break down i think for a lot of people and i was there uh, six months ago say where wasn't even aware that that was even a problem or that's what i was doing just with the you do have a techno because of the question about the um clearing the nose because you have a couple of like um techniques for decongesting your nose like 
the the, yeah. the breath holds with walking or um i heard you on a podcast with rangan chatterjee doing it just nodding your head and mm-hmm. like it's phenomenal literally one 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 round of that how much difference that can make yeah i think the walking one is better it's stronger again um if you go to the home page of oxygenadvantage.com we, we have a test there in addition to the bolt score there's a test that but that i use it's called a maximum breathlessness test and because I always wanted to find out what's the upper limit of tolerance of breathlessness of individuals, but it's also the nose unblocking exercise. So if somebody wanted to measure their MBT, they take a normal breath in and out through their nose, pinch their nose and hold, and walk for as many paces as possible until they can hold their breath for no more, but then let go and breathe in through the nose. Now, it's not a case of you holding your breath until you go blue, but it's about holding your breath until it's pretty tough. Like it's the maximum breathlessness test. Don't do it if you're pregnant. Don't do it if you have high blood pressure, any cardiovascular issues, any serious medical issues. But if you're a healthy individual, um, if you've asthma, go and do it. You know, once you're, once you're not in a severe symptomatic state. Like I think breath holding is very natural for the human being to do. Our ancestors did it. We were getting our, our food from the bottom of the seafloor. And if you go to a local swimming pool, you'll see kids, they'll throw down a diving stick, they'll go down, they'll duck down, get it, get it, and they'll come back up. Human beings, we, we, we love diving. Yeah. So this is what we, our ancestors were doing. And yeah, this is like, if you do that breath hold, that it does activate a sympathetic response. It increases blood flow to the brain. It opens up your nose. And uh, yeah, it can be useful for constipation too, obviously, if you're sitting in the loo, yeah. Why, why does it open up the nose? Because it definitely, like, the diff- if people do it now, like, it, it makes a huge... Like, you did one before, like, just, if you were not yeah. moving, just, just nodding the head. It's, but wh- why does it knows. open up the nose? Nobody knows. But there are uh, some papers showing that it's carbon dioxide buildup. Uh, but um, if I talk to ENTs, not, the mechanism isn't known. And ear, nose, and throat doctors don't really like the whole carbon dioxide theory. Um, but others do. You know, Dr. James Bartley is an ear, nose, and throat doctor from Auckland in New Zealand. And he's written chapters... Support in, that are published in medical textbooks about the importance of nose breathing. And he's one and few and far between because most doctors, unfortunately, don't really give much consideration about whether you breathe through your nose or whether you breathe through your mouth. And all I'm going to say is this. I was a mouth breather for 20 years and it absolutely wreaked havoc on stress, on sleep, on concentration, um, you know, and, and of course on asthma. And think of the asthma population in the UK uh, or any country, but UK is pretty high. It's about number three in the world. It's typically about 8%, 8% of the population. How many kids and adults with asthma have ever been encouraged to breathe through their nose? Well, it's just logical. The mouth doesn't perform any functions in terms of filtration, moistening, warming air, um, you know, the sterilization effect of, of nitric oxide. Yeah. Nitric oxide, a gas first discovered in 1991, which, by the way, is antiviral, antibacterial, um, and it plays a role in redistribution of blood throughout the lungs. And yet our group with asthma, and I was in that, I was never told, breathe through my nose in 20 years of seeing doctors. And that's unfortunate. You yeah. know, it's time that we sometimes have to consider the most basic, simple, and logical things. And even in today's current climate of COVID. Yeah. I looked at, if you Google clinical trials, nitric oxide, COVID, you will see that companies in the United States are applying their performing clinical trials on nitric oxide now, inhaled nitric oxide, to help individuals with, with COVID-19. 
your nose is a tremendous source of this gas. And the problem with COVID-19 is that it targets different uh, type 2 pneumocytes. And these, the, the, the problem with this is that it reduces the production of surfactant. And uh, surfactant is like washing up liquid if you are. It's kind of, it, it allows the lungs to freely move. And for, uh, for gas exchange as a result then to, to enter into the small air sacs. But nitric oxide helps to produce surfactant. And nitric oxide is also natural antiviral. Now, I know some people will say that the concentrations of NO in the nose aren't strong enough, but you can increase it 20-fold if you hum. Uh, if you look at Professor John Lundberg's paper, humming will increase nasal nitric oxide. Some papers say seven, seven times, some say 15, and some say 20 times. So you can increase nitric oxide in the nose uh, by humming, by breath holding, and by slow breathing. But the key is, make sure you breathe through your nose and make sure you breathe as little air as possible. I was in the tube early March. I was flying all the way up. Like I came back from Los Angeles on the 18th, and then I was due to fly to Sydney on, on the 20th, but everything was canceled, so I had to do it remotely at, at the weekend. And I was in the tube in London. It was jam-packed, rush hour. And I was there, and I said, okay, there could be COVID around me here, but I'm going to do two things. I'm not going to be a mouth breather because a mouth breather is literally going to, not only is the, the mouth breather more likely to transmit more of the virus because the virus is transmitted in water droplets and mouth breathers have 42% greater water loss breathing out through an open mouth. So you can imagine somebody who is infected, if they are with their relatives and they're breathing with an open mouth, they are exhaling more water particles into the air. And then if you have another mouth breather beside them, and I don't mean that as a derogative term, yeah. but that mouth breather is going to literally hoover that virus into the lungs. No defense. We're talking about washing hands. Why aren't we talking about nose breathing and slow breathing? Yeah, no, so, so, so important. Um, but like you say, particularly during this, during this time, and it's important that that, um, that gets out there, yeah, that there's, by the nose being a, bit of protection and filtration before stuff mm -hmm. goes into into body there was a couple of questions um and then i'll just let then uh, let tim jump in there's a couple of questions people um about the, the sort of around finding it difficult when they're exercising and, and that whole that the whole, no, the whole nose thing being um blocked up and i've experienced this myself and if they were to do that decongestion um or nose unblocking technique so an in-breath and out-breath and then holding their nose walking for a number of, and counting the number of steps. I mean, I remember when I first did it, I think I struggled to get to 15. And I read in the book yeah. where you're going, oh, I'd like to get people up to 80 or 100 steps. And I was like, flipping heck. Um, but for, yeah. that would be a good thing to do before then trying to then use the nose more during exercise or just at any time when you feel like it's, feel like it's blocked up. And yeah, so totally. I'd recommend those um, people, yeah, have a you, go with that. You could do that exercise five times, twice a day or even three times a day. So we were using that exercise with children, you know, even kids from four or five years of age onwards, especially kids with asthma, um, because we want to open up their nose for them to breathe through it. A, a very good warm-up actually is, you go 10, 15 minutes, very light exercise, and nasal breathing throughout your warm-up, and during that time, do a few strong breath holds. And the reason being is because there is what's called the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And if you put this into Google, you will see it, oxygen dissociation curve. And basically the curve shifts to the right when body temperature increases, when muscle temperature increases, 
and when carbon dioxide increases. Because working muscles need more oxygen. And how do these working muscles get more oxygen? Well, the harder you work a muscle, the hotter it becomes and the more carbon dioxide it produces. So if you think of the warm-up, the warm-up is all about preparing the individual so they can do then more intense physical exercise. But the warm-up is the catalyst, the increase of temperature of that muscle is drawing more oxygen to that muscle before that muscle is worked harder. But another catalyst in addition to the warm-up will be breath-holding. And that's why I think exercising in a sauna could be a very interesting phenomenon because it is going to cause hemoglobin to release oxygen more readily. And I remember going into hot yoga and uh, I bring in a pulse oximeter and I was using in the pulse oximeter in hot yoga and my, I was desaturating down to about 93%. So that's going into not quite mild hypoxia, but I knew then that there's, there's a release that the temperature was having some impact of increasing oxygen delivery to the tissues. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So, People with a nose, a stuffy nose, try and, try and build up your step score. That's your maximum breathlessness test. Try and build it up to about 60 paces um, because your nose is going to be stuffy until then. Yeah, and that's, that's, good. that's good going. That's good going, 60 paces. I'm still, I'm still waiting. Well, it'll increase by about 10 extra each week. If you do about five repetitions, um, five repetitions twice daily, I think there's good, good improvements there. We talk about the repeated sprintability in rugby, but maybe that's at a later time. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I wanted to touch on a couple of those things, actually. I've got first one um, was just around one, one thing you mentioned is circulation. Um, and I like podcasts when we get experts mm-hmm. on because I can ask personal questions and get my own health issues diagnosed. <laughs> um, so I suffer with some Raynaud's um, disease, condition, never had it diagnosed, but like brutal in the winter at times. And it's, it's really stark. And I've got, I had some bolts put in a finger and I snapped it playing rugby, which that one now goes first. Wow. For, for people out there that, that may have something similar around circulation, is it a good starting point? And do you think there's some, some potential um, sort of benefits or um, improvements in the conditions to be made as a result of focusing on, on more breath work? For Raynaud's, I've had mixed results. Some people have had some results with and other people I haven't. Um, Raynaud's can be listed as a symptom of chronic hyperventilation, but when I wasn't getting results 100%, I can't always say. But you know what, Tim, there's only one way to find out. Practice really slowing down your breath. Do it for, say, 10, 15 minutes when you're at home. You're just sitting there and almost breathe as if you're hardly breathing at all. Really slow down your breathing to deliberately increase carbon dioxide in the blood and see can it bring an increase in the temperature of the fingers. Mm -hmm. And then you will know there's a direct cause and effect. Because sometimes, like, tinnitus as well can be linked to a chronic hyperventilation. But I'm, out, I'm not always going to know, is it going to help the person? Yeah. But I, I often say to people, well, does stress make it worse? And if they answer that stress makes it worse, it's, we have a better chance of helping it there because we're helping to counteract the effects of stress by changing breathing patterns. Yeah. And the other one I wanted to sort of get your, your thoughts on is my background is in, in strength and conditioning, worked with a lot of elite athletes over the years. Um, at what point, and is it just a matter of consistent training, could we get to, um, let's say, for example, um, something we see all the time, a guy's just run a 100-meter sprint, a guy or girl, they are doing their, their BBC interview at the end of the race, and they are absolutely, like, gunning for it, mouth-breathing. Yes, they're having to do an interview, but could we get to a point with people through sufficient training where given enough um, sort of discipline over their own 
breath control that they could do maximal effort exercise at that level intensity for that level duration anaerobic type exercise and then still recover through nasal breathing only no it's going to be a higher intensity anyway when they're pushing themselves to that extent and the recovery is is still going to be a little bit taxing but i was working with 400 meter sprinters and these were at a pretty high level national champions united states and we had them do some of their training sessions with mouth breathing because that's the way they would do it anyway. They're elite athletes. I don't want to, I don't want to throw nasal breathing 100%. I have to be realistic, you know. So we had them do some of their training sessions, their 400-meter sprints with their mouth open. Then I had them do 400-meter sprints with their mouth taped up. And then on some of their sessions, I stood on the 360-meter line. I stood there. I, they sprinted 360 meters with their mouth taped, nasal breathing. And when they seen me, they had to hold their nose and breath hold for the last 40 meters. Because what we did was we wanted to add an extra load onto them when they were most tired. So the thing about nasal breathing is, yeah, it's tough, but this is good because it's forcing the body to make some adaptations. If I was working with team sports, I'd do the same. I'd make sure that they do the warm up, nasal breathing, doing breath holding. And also for pre-match anxiety, we need to give a ritual there lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs, slow breathing to help calm the mind. And the night before as well, you know, we use this tape around the mouth at night. We developed it for kids, but we use it for adults too. So it doesn't actually seal the, the lips, but it goes right around the lips. So I would have athletes look at their sleep, look at their training, and uh, you can easily impart this into any sort of physical training. And like strength and conditioning coaches, when they see a guy gassing out too soon, they'll say it's lack of conditioning. It may not be. Um, because you will have some players, regardless of the amount of training that they do, they plateau and they still can't get that edge. Then it's time to look at their breathing patterns because that could be holding them back because it's our everyday breathing which determines our breathing during physical exercise. And that's why I often think like, People going into a, stu a studio and they're doing the these different breathing exercises, you know, that's fine. It's more important though, how are they breathing when they leave the studio? How are they breathing when they're going yeah. down the street? Mm -hmm. How are they breathing when they're at home during their sleep? You know, because that's what the key is. Yeah, I think there's some yeah. really I think the you know, interesting stuff there about efficiency and in terms of that recovery. And I heard Laird Hamilton, um, big wave surfer from um, well, for, for many a year, just um, talking about something similar and being like, if we can switch more to a nasal breathing, just default pattern, that's what we do for levels of exercise. We do it day to day. We're not really thinking about it. When we do need to mouth breathe because you've just been held underwater for a minute and you need and you're going to then need that recovery so much more efficient about actually like he says it feels like you're getting reservoirs coming in when you actually have to switch to it from a flight or fight perspective and it's it's almost using the right systems at the right time with a little bit more discipline and control around it so i think it's um it's a really interesting one to put into an athlete's training program and and, um, and yeah. we've often talked about sort of repeat speed work and you, you just mentioned about rugby there but in an anaerobic sort of set we still need a base level of VO2 max conditioning because we need, when they're not sprinting in anaerobic type zones, they are recovering. And therefore, the more we can do to improve efficiency during recovery, the faster we are then going to be in terms of repeat speed efforts. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing. And, and it's, it's a, um, it'd be, it's, I think there's a, 
hopefully there's a movement coming and I've, and I've seen some England rugby players using it um, and a number of people started to come in popularity where we start to um, I, I just I think you're an absolute savage for making 400 metres that hard like 400 <laughs> metres is horrible <laughs> never mind 400 metres with tape over your mouth and then 40 metres yeah but they won two nose. goals worth it <laughs> it was worth it but Tim you look at look at the paper by Wurons which was published in 2018 they got 21 elite rugby union players uh, 21 years of age and they they had one group do breath toll sprinting for 40 meters eight reps per set two sets a week and they had the, the other group in the control group doing their typical high intensity int- interval training their, their repeated sprintability score before the test was nine and the group who did their repeated sprint abilities on a breath hold on a breath hold exhalation same as the oxygen advantage their repeated sprintability increased from 9 to 14.8 in four weeks. Now, the control group didn't change at all. The control group were doing high-intensity interval training. Athletes are doing high-intensity interval training with a view of stimulating anaerobic glycolysis. They're hardly going hypoxic. Their SpO2 will drop down to about 93% with mouth breathing, 91% with nose breathing. Their CO2 in the blood hardly increases at all. You could get an athlete to jog doing breath holding and it will have a greater impact on disturbing the blood acid base balance and less trauma because athletes are sometimes overdoing it. They're pushing themselves far too hard in the belief of stimulating anaerobic glycolysis. Well, you could walk around holding your breath and you could achieve a greater drop to blood oxygen saturation and increase CO2 because disturbing the blood acid base balance, I think that's also important in terms of adaptations. And I know Lard, um, I'm a breathing advisor for XPT. So I go over, you know, generally once a year. Um, and my next trip is to go to Malibu in July. And theirs is the Breathe Move Recovery. And they do a lot of pool training. And it's amazing yeah, stuff. Yeah, I'd love to do that course, actually. It's, it's, I've seen it. It looks amazing. Oh, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Now, it's brutal. I have to say, I, I'm, I'd be dreading it <laughs> because I'm not an athlete. And uh, over because I like the breathing aspect of it, but the ice baths, yeah, I do them, but it's the only time of year that I do do them. Um, I do the breath work on the, on, in the pool and I give a, a breathing session there. But I've seen Lard pushing himself, holding his breath, dropping his SpO2 down into the 60s. It's incredible stuff, you know, and that's, I suppose, the marker of resilience of an individual. And why would you do something like that? Well, if you disturb the blood acid base balance, you're increasing hydrogen ions so much that you're, posi- you're causing the body to make adaptations to increase the buffering capacity. And this then in turn is going to delay lactic acid and fatigue. And if I was to compare this to high intensity interval training, for the, from the purpose of delaying lactic acid, there's no comparison. Like I, I would say to anybody involved in team sports, look at the paper by Wurons, W-O-O, sorry, W-O-O-R-O-N-S. And uh, we, we have the science up on oxygenadvantage.com. Anybody in team sports, repeated sprintability is a very good performance indicator and you can increase that. I love that. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And one of the things I love about it is you've got, you've got these um, examples and techniques that people can, can practice as part of their training um, to try and specifically change something like um, all those bits that we've talked about, basically, but the, the the very essence and the very heart of it actually is being more aware. Or one of the most important things is what you're doing most of the time. You're always breathing, 
but are you aware of how you're doing it? And actually you can make a lot of changes by just bringing an awareness throughout your day of how am I feeling? Do I feel stressed? Where am I breathing from? Is it through my nose, through my mouth, where in my body and trying to get to a position where you make it, make that good habit just part of your, your normal habit. And that doesn't, that doesn't require you to do like another, you know, a training session on it, or you just, you can just build it into, um, build it into just your normal day to day. And it's going to have a positive effect on your, on your health and wellbeing. Cause as you mentioned throughout, it's, you know, we've had a number of people um, on the podcast, like we've had a a couple of functional uh, medicine doctors and that type of stuff. And we've had people with, uh, you know, all sharing like a holistic approach to our health and wellness. And it falls into that. It's, it's a part of the puzzle about us trying to be, trying to be healthier um, and trying to, um, you know, improve our longevity as, as long as, as long as we're around. Um, there was a couple of questions though from people about mm-hmm. try, when they're trying to use it in training. Um, and uh, one was, um, let me just getting him up, um, struggling that when they're, when they're actually wanting to try and do it, but when they're doing their training session, it might be like a likely a, like a bodyweight calisthenics training session. It might be like pull-ups, push-ups, dips, and things like that. But then they just can't get enough air going through. Would it be a case for them of going like do like understanding what you're what you're wanting? Sometimes, have you mentioned there, like there'll be times when the way you're training, you might choose to then allow yourself to breathe through your mouth. But then there's other times when you're going to do a, a training session where you're going to try and make yourself breathe through your nose would that be even even well first of all i'd say look at your bowl score work yes work to get that higher then your breathing is getting lighter so ventilation is reduced so it will be easier to sustain nasal breathing Se- secondly is look at your breathing pattern if you're breathing fast upper chest it's very inefficient um to give you an example if i give you the math straight off if you were to take 12 breaths in through your nose and each breath, this is during rest, each breath is a half a litre. That will give you a minute ventilation with nasal breathing of six litres. But with that, when I subtract dead space, this is the air that remains in your nose, in your throat, in your bronchi, your bronchioles. If you have 12 breaths per minute with a minute ventilation of, of six litres, of that 4.2 litres reaches the small air sacs in the lungs. Now, if I had that individual change their breathing pattern from 12 breaths to six breaths, and if I increase the tidal volume, which is the size of each breath to a litre, they still take in six litres of air into their nose. But the amount of air that gets into the small air sacs is 5.1. So I've increased their ventilation 20%. I've improved their breathing efficiency by 20%. So if an athlete is really caught for breath, if they're breathing fast and shallow, they're wasting a lot of air in dead space because you're not breathing to bring air just into your nose, into your throat. You're breathing to get this air down into the small air sacs so that oxygen can transfer into the blood. So by changing your respiratory rate, I would say is have a look at your breathing pattern. You're better off taking fuller breaths, but less of them. But when you take full breaths, make sure you don't overbreathe, because then it can cause your blood vessels to constrict. And that's something that we use in terms of, because if you think of the guys in rugby or any guys who are doing sports, physical movement, Functional movement and functional breathing go together. And functional movement is dependent on functional breathing. And what does functional breathing mean? Well, it means that your diaphragm is not just for respiration, that your diaphragm is also playing a role in the generation of what's called intra-abdominal pressure. 
So when a weightlifter usually picks up a weight, they'll often breathe in and they'll hold the breath because the diaphragm is pushing downwards. It's causing the abdomen to become like a pneumatic balloon or stabilization for the spine. So this generation of intra-abdominal pressure is dependent on functional movement patterns. And for this, we want lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. So I would say to the person who's gassing out too soon, yeah, do you know what, just check, are you breathing fast and shallow because it's not efficient, but not only is it not efficient, it could also be hampering um, the generation of intra-abdominal pressure because we, we want the, the role of the diaphragm and there's another, it's based at the interplay in terms of the zone of apposition. And the zone of apposition is the height from the top of the diaphragm down to the lower ribs. But in order to generate intra-abdominal pressure, you need to have as much of a zone of apposition as possible. And for this, you want to have a normal exhalation. But some people, their diaphragm, especially if they're chronic mouth breathers, their diaphragm doesn't work the way it should do. It's not going back up to its normal resting position. This in turn then is affecting functional movement. And then they are at more of a risk of injury even lower back pain, for example. So I think, as you said earlier on, we can't look at the human body in isolation. There's so many things here that, that are bi-directional. And the breath is really one of those functions that can influence and play a role. And breathing is so important in terms of human survival that if breathing is off, other functions will be sacrificed in order to maintain respiration. We need to get breathing optimal. Great. There's another question to come in. It's kind of links to some of that that you were talking about, particularly around um, the weightlifting at inside abdominal pressure potentially. And it'd be good to get your thoughts on um, from Gemma Jefferson, who is um, a physio with British Athletics. And she's, um, she says that she's found that um, improving breathing makes an um, sort of immediately improves thoracic um, range of motion. So great for rotational sports. Have you got any thoughts around that? I think I would agree with her. You know, when you look at the paper by Josephine Keyes, and when you look at the, 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 the papers looking at, um, these are mainly papers published by physical therapists, which will be equivalent to physios in Europe, physical therapists from the United States because they don't have a physiotherapy discipline. Um, so the physical therapist papers that are published in the International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy, and there's quite a few papers coming out. This is starting to get some attention in the last five years. Um, so, so I would agree with her. I think mobility, I think, is really... Like when you're thinking about that box there, you're talking about the diaphragm at the roof, the pelvic floor at the, at the, at the base, you know, the, the abdomens to the front and you've got the spine to the back. And I think it's really important that we give recognition to the diaphragm as a muscle, which is assisting in movement as well. Yeah. And just to follow on from that, she asked a second question, saying um, that she knows that some people have more of a challenge on expiration than inhalation, feeling like it's hard to fully exhale as if there is a block. Will that, is that something that will, yes. move with, uh, will improve with, with normal breathing exercises? Well, first of all, I would like to measure their bolt score um, because it's very important that the individual has enough time to have a normal exhalation. Now, to, just to give an exaggerated example, would be somebody with COPD. Their bolt score could be five seconds. These, this person is very much caught for breath. So they have a breath in, but they don't have enough time for an exhalation, a normal exhalation, because they feel air hunger. So then they take a breath in. So it's breath stacking. And breath stacking can also happen during physical exercise, especially when the athlete is overdoing it. So what I would say is if the individual, it depends, number one is on both score. 
or is it happening during physical exercise or could it be as a result of trauma that you had an individual who had a traumatic experience and as a result they're in paradoxical breathing so what we do there in this instance that we have them have a normal breath in and a normal breath out to functional residual capacity and then i have them exhale as much as possible so i actually make the breath out active and i have them exhale and zip up the front exhale 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 and then to allow the breath in happen by itself. So what I'm doing is trying to get the diaphragm to go back up to that resting position. Now, breath holding will also target the diaphragm because if you breathe in, hold your breath, sorry, if you breathe in, breathe out and hold your breath, and if you walk around, at some point because of the change to blood gases, your, di your brain starts sending a signal to the diaphragm to breathe. So you'll start getting these involuntary contractions of the diaphragm. So that can help to loosen up the diaphragm. Now, physios will also have, they'll have diaphragm release techniques. And another way that we do it as well, if the diaphragm is a little bit rigid, or I don't know, some people use the word frozen, but take a normal breath in through your nose, normal breath out, hold your nose. And as you hold your breath, try and breathe in and out as you hold your breath and then take a release then and breathe in. So there are different techniques as well as lying on the back with supine breathing. Um, you know, and we use a belt as well. So we use... I created well this is an idea that we use for many of our clients and this is a belt that we put around the midriff and we have people exercise with the belt on so that we're having them breathe with lateral expansion and contraction because it's not just about looking at a person's breathing when they're sitting on the chair i i also have them then breathe during walking and then we have them breathe with with functional breathing during movement to try and get them to carry that there's another technique we use as well. We use sports mask. So we use that as well to add an extra load onto the diaphragm. But nose breathing, if you go for a run with your mouth closed, the resistance imposed by nose breathing will actually add an extra load onto your diaphragm as well. So that could be a good way too of, of getting that diaphragm because if the end of it, like sometimes people, you know, the concentration is on breathing using the lower regions of the lungs, but there's no mention of breathing through the nose. I don't think you can restore diaphragmatic breathing, meaning breathing low, unless you breathe nose. Yeah, yeah, and as we said right at the beginning, the importance, uh, the importance of that on your your overall health and well-being and efficiency of um, of your breathing and and all that incorporates that. Hopefully, people are um, encouraged encouraged to take up um, a little bit of an explore. You know, my encouragement for people listening would be if you haven't done yet, like just ex just explore the idea um do a couple of the um the the techniques that um patrick has mentioned think about being a bit more aware throughout the day of where you're actually breathing from um and try to make that you know some of the simple things you talk about like breathe light to breathe right so like just slowing it down you mentioned it to tim with his with his sort of rain eyes but just generally for this like can you slow down your breathing can you relax i've i've noticed when i do stop and think about it during the day particularly when i'm a little bit wired i might be a little bit stressed about something that i feel like the tension like higher up in my almost like behind my sternum almost like when i finally i stop and i think and i breathe through my nose and i relax and it just sort of like sinks down i don't know if that even actually maybe is it my diaphragm but just almost like sinks down into my stomach and i i do see feel like a a sense of calm but at the same time, when I do my final sort of one is just for people when you're trying to, I've heard you say it before, Patrick, that 
almost if you're trying to do stuff and if you're a bit like me you get quite competitive and you tend to it says once your bolt scores at this level like try this exercise and and you're always trying to do something that's a little bit too hard and you get to, i've had to the point where trying to run but run too fast and your advice would always be if he's if just losing control of your breathing like just slow it down to a pace where you can if you want to work if you are going to be working on your um on your mm-hmm. on your nasal breathing but going too fast that i'm breathing but i'm still determined to breathe through my nose and i breathe so hard that when i breathe in my nose actually like closes up on itself because i'm breathing yeah. too hard yeah. uh, and almost yeah. trying too hard yeah. um and this depend on the muscles as well some people are prone to nasal valve collapse so this is where a nasal dilator can be helpful okay. um so there's products on the market there's one called the turbine and um it's produced by an Amer- or an australian company rhinomed and uh, it's just a nasal dilator so for anybody that if you do have say nasal valve collapse if you're just doing recreational running i think it's much it's more comfortable if you yeah. if you wear a nasal dilator yeah the breed right strips the only problem with them is with sweat they don't stick right. so the turbine is a plastic device that will help open up the nose and you'll know it anyway if you gently prise your nostrils apart you'll feel it you'll feel a difference to your breathing yeah so say for instance when you're pushing yourself during physical exercise and if you just put your hands on your on your your and you open it up and if that makes a difference for you nasal dilator will make a difference yeah i'm doing it now and i can feel the i can feel the difference <laughs> but uh but like elite athletes like i'm not going to say to any elite athlete is to switch to 100 percent nose breathing but what i would try and do is get them to switch to 50 percent nasal breathing like do your normal training but spend a good part of your training with your mouth closed and then for re- recreational athletes i think it's worth i think it's worth the initial step back to get that progress there you know, I was, yeah. I wrote an article, I put it up on our website and what, the more I thought about it, I just couldn't believe why, if you go into any gym in the country and um, you walk in, even when people are doing fairly light physical exercise, they're generally going to have them out open. It, it doesn't make sense. You know, can I ask yeah. one last question, Jack, before we, uh, we sure, wrap this course, up? Then, Sorry. Right? Um, I'll talk all day. <laughs> country, no problem. I'm just, I'm interested <laughs> about, um, what you said with children. If we, if we are Growing a, I, I've got a little boy, Jack, he's three years old, and I think as any father would be that I want to, I want to put him in a better position to, to enjoy and get the most out of life than, than, than I was. Not that I had a bad situation, we was trying to improve it, right? So if he's going to be potentially growing up, we've got a nation of kids that are growing up who are habitual mouth breathers. He's three years old, he's got massive tonsils, which is something which we actually got to do a little bit of sleep uh, sort of analysis with because he really struggles with that. At what age should we start to be introducing breathing techniques with kids? And, and it's like, if anyone who's got children will know that trying to get a three-year-old to blow his nose when he's got a cold is like brutal. So is, that, does, is there a stage where they then start to get more control over it and then that's when we should start to, to think about it more? Um, Tim, massive tonsils is usually a risk suspect for sleep apnea. Yeah. And you may not identify that with a sleep study, but what I would say is talk to an ENT. Um, Generally, if a child has massive tonsils, it is causing a narrowing to the airway. And if a child, it's totally different when a child has obstructive sleep apnea to an adult. The AHI index, which is a measurement of apnea, hypopnea severity, for a child, it's one to five events per hour. And for an adult, it's five to 15. In other words, if a child is snoring, that's sleep disorder breathing. And if you notice that your child is, is snoring, but then they stop breathing, 
that's an apnea. And the issue with this is that it can affect their cognitive development. Now, it affects between 1% and 5% of children with obstructive sleep apnea, but enlarged tonsils can be suspect. Now, when tonsils are removed, um, and maybe with the tonsils, the child could have an enlarged adenoids, but it's only going to be the ENT that can, that can judge that. It's really important to restore nasal breathing. Most children, when they have adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy, there's no, there's no follow-up support post-surgery. And Dr. Christian Guimano, he discovered, well, he didn't discover, like sleep apnea has been around for a long, long time. It was first written about by Charles Dickens. Uh, it was called the Pickwick, Pickwickian syndrome. It was this guy, Joe, he was a fat guy and he kept on falling asleep. So it's been around a long time, but Dr. Christian Guimano coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea. And he developed the apnea hypopnea index. And he said that children, it's absolutely key. There is restoration of nasal breathing, both during wakefulness and sleep as being the only valid and in, in quotes, complete correction of pediatric sleep disorder breathing. Now, ENTs are not talking about this. ENTs will remove the tonsils in kids, remove the adenoids. They'll say nothing about nasal breathing. And these kids have a 65% worsening of their AHI index within three years. And a tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, it is a traumatic. I put my own daughter to it, through it. If it's the tonsils, I think it's better off that something was done. Now, if it was the adenoids, I would probably look towards a functional dentist um, or for a three-year-old, even an osteopath or somebody, because what we want to do is we want to make sure that there's sufficient room in the, for the, in the maxilla. We want the maxilla to be nice and wide. And a good osteopath who is trained in the craniofacial elements, all they will do is using a pair of rubber, using a pair of gloves, put their fingers into the child's mouth and just gently expand the palate. Now you could do it yourself, but I don't know enough information about it, but I've seen it being done. I've spoke because this is a field that 50% of my work is with sleep. Um, and you could with just a pair of gloves, putting your fingers, your thumbs into the child's mouth, applying gentle pressure for 10 seconds, because what we want to do is try and develop the airway. I think it's huge, you know? And so what would I say is, yeah, absolutely. I would go with, with children. Now we've put all of the children's exercise up free of charge. If you go to butecoclinic.com forward slash buteco children. So our online program is completely free for kids. There's, we don't look for, there's nothing, no email address, nothing is looked for. We put everything up free on YouTube. But I developed this tape as well for kids. And I'm going to show it to you now. This is called MyoTape. MyoTape after myofunctional therapy, which is used in dentistry. We need children to get their, their mouth closed during sleep, but how do you do it? So I took this idea from Kinesio Tape, but we had to alter the glue and we had to make some changes to it. It's kinesio tape in the shape of an O or a strip like this. It's stretched. And the elastic tension of the tape brings the lips together. So what I would say is if you have kinesio tape, cut it out into that shape or myo tape. It's relatively inexpensive, by the way. I think it's about 20 euro for three months. Mm -hmm. So it's relatively inexpensive. But I would have the child wear it for about a half an hour to an hour per day watching television, trying to get the habit of nasal breathing. 
I wrote an article called Buteco, it's on butecoclinic.com forward slash crooked And I also wrote a number of books for kids. Um, and there's a chapter in the Oxygen Advantage actually on craniofacial yeah. development. So if you read that, like I'll be happy to send you on any amount of papers on it. But for children, I think this is vital. And this is where nobody is talking about it because I was one of those kids who were mouth breathing. My jaws are set back, my airway is compromised. So I'm at a risk of having obstructive sleep apnea because it's, it's not just the mouth breathing during childhood. The problem is with mouth breathing during childhood, those effects stay for the child, the rest of that child's life. And there's, there's a great book coming out in, just bear me one second until I try and look at it. It was written by a journalist from the United States called James Nestor. Now I get this version, this, it's not out yet. But I don't know if you see that. The name yeah. of the book is called Breath. Breath by James Letzer. And this is one of the best books on breathing that I have ever read. It's absolutely tremendous. And if you read this... Better than your book? Well, I'd say... But it might be better than the next one. <laughs> <laughs> but it is better than the Oxygen Advantage as it stands. Wow. Now, it's the practical exercise. The Oxygen Advantage will be a lot more practical. Now, there's a yeah. lot of overlap. Yeah. So, there's a lot of the same same concepts but he wrote it differently and that he interviewed different people whereas i didn't i just used the information myself yeah but he as a journalist went to the experts so it's kind of from that different perspective but he he interviewed professor john mew which is um great orthodontist in his 90s from purley and his son is the author of the book i see the questionnaire james james nestor n-e-s-t-o-r and he wrote a book on free diving as well, which apparently revolutionized free diving. This is published by Penguin Books. So this is going to be a big seller, but it's not out until May. But he did interview a number of orthodontists and he went through all of this aspect to it. And he looked at as well the history of carbon dioxide and why it, it got such bad press. And apparently it was one doctor who totally turned everybody against carbon dioxide. And before that carbon dioxide canisters used to be in, back, in the back of um, emergency rescue personnel trucks, etc. Because if you remember, people with panic disorder, if, typically if they had a panic attack years ago, they'd be told to breathe in and out of a, a, a bag, paper bag. And what he do, did was he's uncovered the history, why breathing has changed. And yeah, coming back to kids, he's put a lot of information in there about kids. But yeah, I'll send you on the papers and you'll get them anyway if you go to butecoclinic.com and you'll see the free online children's course and everything. Great. Sit your child in front of it. You'll see it was my own daughter that I did the exercise with. So yeah, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Cool. Thanks for not that. Always, it's not always the easiest to work with your own kid, but you know what? <laughs> Give it a go. Yeah, we'll definitely check that out. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and we'll make sure, we, you know, you've mentioned a number of um, different links and things that people might want to check out. So we'll make sure we put... Um, all those um, in the show notes so that people can get through straight to those, whether it's, you know, the Oxford Advantage, that other book or the links to the various different websites that, um, that you've mentioned um, and any papers that we can, uh, that we can link to, that would be, that would be great. Um, just, I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd, I don't want to necessarily, have one last thing where you mentioned about like um, with, with Tim's talking about his little boy and, um, and he mentioned it before of, the fact that that's going to carry on if they like the if we're not breathing through the nose and the the whole cavity closing down the mouth etc if we as an adult like you know i'm thinking of myself now and you mentioned like is there 
is there nothing like structurally those changes that have happened is that just that's just set now like there's nothing gonna there's nothing that i can actually do about that or we can do about that we just need to focus on actually the breathing mechanics or is there actually um, anything that will potentially change traditionally it was it was recognized or it was accepted that the jaw stopped growing in a, in a in a female at about 18 years of age and a male about 21 years of age but then there was a concept called mewing m e w m e w i n g um it was it was it was patients of dr mike mew which put it out there and it went viral and these are chewing exercises and nasal breathing and there's also exercise then you're pressing the the tongue up into the roof of the mouth and it this it could be possible um, it could be possible that the shape and the growth right. of the face could change over time in an adult. But I would say this is like, it's really important that we have enough room in our mouth for our tongue. And I'm going to give you an example. If you look at a, a photograph of Prince William and Kate Middleton and look at them when they smile and count the amount of teeth that you see on Kate Middleton, you'll typically see about 12 teeth and then count the amount of teeth that you see on Prince William. And my, sus my suspicion is that Prince William had orthodontics. He had two or four teeth removed. His mouth was made smaller. And Kate Middleton, her face developed the way it should do. And she's got a beautiful face. She's got a functional face. And uh, it's again, mouth breathing and orthodontics. With orthodontics, just always, if somebody, if an orthodontist says to get two or four teeth removed, Get a second opinion. You've only got 32 teeth. You want to hold on to them. The problem is not that the teeth are too big, but the problem is that the jaw is too small. So it doesn't make sense to remove more teeth to make the jaw even smaller because we need to have sufficient room in the mouth for the tongue. And if the tongue, if there's not enough room in the tongue for the mouth, the tongue is more likely to encroach in the airway. And this as a result then can reduce airway size. And of course, airway size is going to be important for sports and also for sleep. But if you look at athletes, typically they have really attractive looking faces, male and female. And we select our, our mates based on attractiveness. But now if you really boil it down, an attractive face is the way a face should have developed with a very functional airway. So we are selecting our mates, not just on the basis of attractiveness, but survival of the species. And the human face is getting smaller and the airway is getting smaller and it's happening very, very quickly. I was working from a dental professor of dentistry in Latvia, sorry, in Lithuania um, last year. And one of our tasks was to identify individuals who were executed during the Russian revolution. So basically in 1917 or thereabouts, um, the Russians caught a group of these Lithuanians who were trying to rebel and uh, they executed them and just threw their bodies into a grave on Martin in Lithuania. But her task was to identify, the, to identify the, the skulls, the people. And we looked at the skulls. And when you've seen the forward growth of the face, and this was only 100 years ago, these people were remarkable people in terms of the development of their face, etc., and plenty of room and good airways. And uh, yeah, the modern face is changing. So... So I would say, kids, I think we really need to give them good breathing patterns. I know this is not being discussed by healthcare authorities. They've completely overlooked it. But uh, what I would say is 
look at the science that's out there. I think there's enough available evidence. And the other thing is, first do no harm. You will never cause risk by encouraging any child or adult to breathe through the nose. It's natural. It's the normal physiological mode of breathing. We were born breathing through the nose, and that's the way it should be, regardless of age. Yeah, I was one of those kids who had teeth removed and then an orthodontics, so I am in that camp myself. It's very common, yeah. Tim. It's very common, and I only wish... You know, there's, a, there's um, the right to grow. If you go into YouTube and put in their right to grow, it's, it's a case-led action lawsuit, I think, that was taking place in Canada. It was a group of patients who had extractions and they developed obstructive sleep apnea against it. And they started, they got very upset when they realized it all happened as a result of orthodontics. So there are different schools of thought in orthodontistry, but development of the jaws to make room for the teeth is much more beneficial than just removing teeth. Because that's removing teeth is the easy way out. Um, but it's not the right way, not long term anyway. But you know what, like I'm in the same camp as you, I've, I've got compromised airways. But once we start breathing through the nose and we have the tongue and the roof of the mouth and taping them out, the body does compensate. And most certainly, um, I wouldn't say that I'm absolutely 100%, definitely not, but I've made do with the best that I have. Yeah. What, what's your bolt score out of interest? It can change. It can go down to 30. It can go up to 45, 50. So it's, it that's high, to, that's high. It, it can change, but it will depend. And it depends if I travel a lot, if I'm talking a lot. Yeah. Um, and then when I come back here, I love just chilling out and, you know, I'm in the wilderness, I'm away from everybody. So I've got a, a great opportunity to have quietness and stillness of the mind as well. Yeah. So Patrick, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. As I said, we'll put all the links for everything that you mentioned from the, the mouth tape to all the websites and all the resources. You know, there's so much stuff that you put out, all the free stuff for the kids. It's absolutely amazing. We're, um, if you haven't got his book yet, make sure that you do get that. And we're, we're really looking forward to excited for the new book that you mentioned that is going to come out um, as well. Um, but just thank you so much for your time. Um, but there's nothing else for us to say on the Schoolcast Science Podcast other than until next time. Class dismissed. So thank you so much again for listening. We don't take it lightly that you uh, give up probably an hour of your time to listen to these podcasts, and we really do appreciate that. We hope you got a lot of value out of it, guys, and we would, if you did, we would love you to do a couple of things for us. One of them is to tell other people and share it if you thought that we were adding some value, and also if you want to, pop over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this and give us a five-star review. We like five stars. Four stars not as good keep it five are the best five of your best stars please <laughs> and if you would like to find out more about the school of calisthenics and see the best of everything that we have got head over to our virtual classroom you can access it from the website at schoolofcalisthenics.com and that is where we have got literally possibly the best calisthenics resource available anywhere in the world it's definitely the best one we've done and on that note until next week class dismissed